Hi there, pinball fans. It's your favorite clown, Krusty. And you're listening to Norman Shaggy on the Topcast, the greatest pinball show ever made. Uh, can I get my money now? I'm such a whore. Celebrity voice impersonated. You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash Topcast. Today on TopCast, we have an interview with a Williams programmer and system architect that worked there starting in 1993 up to 1999, and he worked on such games as Corvette, Johnny Mnemonic, and NBA Fast Break, in addition to developing all the uh, operating system level code for Pinball 2000. So we're going to be talking to him right now, and he'll give us his perspective on the software development uh, at Williams Bally at the time in the 1990s. Special, special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. So I'd like to welcome Tom Uban, who was the lead programmer for Corvette, Johnny Mnemonic, and NBA Fastbreak. In addition to doing all the Pinball 2000 operating system level code for Revenge for Mars and Star Wars Episode One. Uh, in addition to uh, any of the games following that. And uh, so let's get Tom on the line. Give him a call right now and see how he's doing. Let's get Tom on the line. Let's see what's up with Tom. Hello. Tom, you were uh, you started working at Williams in 1993, but prior to that you kind of had a long history of computer software engineering. Um, and you also went to school at Purdue where you got your double E, and at the same time you knew Ted Estes too, right? Right. Ted worked for me at Purdue. I worked for um, the engineering computer department, computer network, ECN, and maintained terminals and printers and stuff. And Ted was, uh, Ted was going to school there, and he worked part-time for me, cleaning printers and things like that. So was he a good worker? Ted? Yeah, he was fine. <laughs> I just had to ask. So, you well, you graduated in 85 with your double E? That's correct. Okay. And then where did you go to work? Uh, then I went down to uh, Champaign-Urbana and worked for Gould Computers, writing uh, Unix operating system software. Okay. How long did that last? Uh, almost two years, something, something like that, about two years. And then where did you head to? Then I went out and lived out east for five or six years, um, working initially for Bolt, Brannock, and Newman. You might remember them. They were the ones that um, brought back the sound on the, the the erased Nixon tapes. Oh, okay. Were you involved with that project? No, no. I worked for uh, Advanced Computer Network, or Advanced Computer uh, Incorporated, which was a subsidiary of them. Did you get any uh, anything, any privy information on the Nixon thing at all? No, I didn't really know anything about that. That's just one of the things that they were well known for. They did a lot of government contract work. I worked on a massively parallel uh, computer that, that was built by the company and worked on a software for that, operating system software for that. So I was, I was primarily an operating system guy. So then you came back to the Midwest and worked for Williams about after that? That's right. Ted gave me a call one day. We kept in touch. Uh, Ted lived in 
in Champagne for a while also. Um, and so we'd kept in touch over the years, and, and Ted gave me a call one day looking for people to work at Williams, and I said, sure. So I I had, uh, in, in 1990, I had switched to doing consulting on my own, and so I was out there for three years doing consulting and when Ted gave me the call, and, and we moved back at that point. Hmm. So in 93, you started at, at Williams. I mean, what was, uh, what was your position in your title, or, or what were you doing there? Uh, basically, everyone was a software engineer. They, they weren't really big on official titles, so you know we could pretty much make up whatever title we wanted because it was the same job either way. Um, but basically, I was a software programmer, and I was uh, you know working on, on game software. So I, everyone always started out in order to get initiated into the whole thing by writing some kind of um, test test code for one of the devices. And the first thing I wrote uh, program for was the was the the uh, pencil slicer, carrot slicer, whatever you want to call it, finger chopper thing in Popeye. If you recall, there was this big metal plate with holes in it that spun around and the oh, ball right. fell through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking so about. So I yeah. wrote the uh, the the test software. That, all, that resided in the game as well as what um, was used in the quality test lab to make sure the device wouldn't fail over time. That was the first thing I wrote. And then uh, and then I started working on games with George Gomez on Corvette was the first game. And uh, Yeah, I noticed you did you did software for three games. You did Corvette in 94, Johnny Mnemonic Johnny in 95. Man, I can never say that name right. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, NBA Fast Break in '97, and those are all Gomez games, right? Right. I worked primarily on Gomez games. I also worked on on a game that ne- was never released. It was uh, Armed and Dangerous, which was a linked non-pinball-like game, and it went through three or four iterations. And I think some of the some of the Whitewoods are still out there somewhere. Um, so it was a WPC '95. Uh, architecture type thing. Yes, and uh, the playfield design changed drastically over three iterations. I think it was initially it was kind of pinball-like and had these continuous ball feeds of pinball-sized balls on left and right, both left and right of the flipper, and then it switched to um, this this rapid-fire type situation with, I think there were 5 8 inch nylon balls or something like that. Um, and there were gates that you were shooting at in these tanks that were aiming back. It was always tank-themed. Um, part of what uh, what I did when I was writing that software was write some linking code that let two games link up. And that's the code that I used in, in NBA in order to uh, do the linked NBA game, which some people may know about. Right. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Let's back up to, to the Corvette thing and also your uh, some more of your um, early experiences at, at Williams. When you So, you know, at Williams you were writing everything in 6809 Assembler, right? That's right. Everything was assembly and WPC. Right. So, I mean, how did that compare to, you know, your prior experiences with, with software? Um, I'd always been a low-level software programmer, so, you know, doing operating system stuff, I'd done a, quite a bit of assembly uh, here and there I, when, it, when it was necessary. It's not my favorite thing, but, you know, it's part of the deal. Um, so it wasn't hard for me, and, and 
after you do it for a little bit, you get pretty used to it. And, and the whole system was uh, pretty well designed. It was uh, running uh, Larry DeMar's Apple um, system. Yeah, what, the advanced pinball programming language environment or something like that? Logic Executive, I think, is what it was. Logic Executive, is that okay? And, uh, so, so, yeah, it was a great environment, uh, easy to program in, a lot of fun. And, I mean, was this challenging compared to, you know, compared to the other stuff you did? It, it sounded like this was almost a walk in the park. Well, um, it's completely different, and it, you know, used a different part of my brain. Because they're in pinball and game software, you get to do a lot of creative, a lot of creative work, and so that was fun to to be able to exercise the creativity that I have, and and then see people enjoy it or not, and um, that was a lot of fun to do that. Not to mention that that you know you're packing lots of stuff into a game in a very short time, so it was definitely definitely a lot of work to be able to do that in the time that we had had to do it in. Did um did you ever have to do any uh, display graphic work? Uh yeah, um on all the WPC games, the first one Corvette, uh Bill Grupp and I programmed together, Bill did the um display work and I did the game and, and stuff. And then on the all the follow-up games that I did uh the other two games, I did all the work myself and so that entailed both graphics and game software. So you did all the all the artwork for no, we don't do the artwork we do the well we do the animation of well we do the the how do you, so they provide the frames right there's dot guys like Scott Slomiani and and such which which created the the dots the actual dots themselves Adam Ryan um, and then we would take those and 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 program them to you know flip through in the right sequence or move little sprite guys around on it or, or whatever it is. It was always different. And also, well, there's also uh, uh, wipes, which are where it goes from one frame to another, which are generally pretty much just uh, some kind of programmatic effect. Was those? Was there a set of standard, like, animation tools and, and wipes and that in, in Larry's Apple system, or is this stuff you all had to write? Uh, there were a set of... of Standard wipes and things like that that people would use, but but everyone always wanted to make their game a little bit um, different and more fresh. So it was pretty standard to come up with another wipe or two for each game that you did, just to just to give it a new feel. But you would certainly u- utilize the ones that existed already as well. And, and after uh, you've used it in a game, then typically everyone would feel you know like they could use it in another game later on too, since it's already been used. So you mean once you wrote one, you, you give it to Larry, and then he kind of puts it into his into his Apple system. Well, we just pooled all the software. Everyone, you know, had was had access to all the other games and such, so you could you could use whatever was there. You might ask them if they if they felt weird about it or not, but generally everyone would share. Certainly after it was out in the game already. Now on Corvette, what were there any particular challenges that that game, you know? That game gave you, you know, on a on a software or, or hardware level or, or whatever. The biggest challenge in that game was the engine. George wanted the engine to shake, and um, so the normal thing would have been, of course, to just take a a coil and flop it up and down, or take a motor and make it rock back and forth. But uh, for some reason, I felt compelled not to do it that way, and talked them into letting me build this piece of electronics that 
works kind of like a speaker coil works, where you have magnets driven in an analog fashion rather than digitally on or off, and uh, and it has feedback, and so it, it kind of rocked the engine that way, and getting that circuit to work right in a production environment, cheap, cheap production environment like a pinball game, turned out to be more work than I expected, not to mention doing that and program the game, my first game, so... That was pretty thrilling. Kept me up a lot of nights. And when it came down to the wire, it was very close to being thrown out of the game. But, but we oh, made it. really? You mean because it just there wasn't enough time to perfect it? Or yeah, something? it was close. It was it really came close to the wire of not being able to make it. It, it is a cool effect, though. I mean, it. the the way the engine shakes is is you know, I mean, you know, when you open the hood of a car and you hit the gas, it, you don't really see the engine move. A lot, especially on, certainly not on new cars, but on right, old right. cars, they kind of have a rock to them. Yeah. And, and it does kind of mimic that. Yeah, of course, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough just as an effect for George. He, uh, he wanted to be able to play the ball with it too, so, so we had the ball in there and, and the shaking actually made the ball, you know, stay in the engine and, and move in there so you could see it, which is all very cool and, you know, that's, that's why George is such a good designer is because he comes up with these great ideas. Just a question of being able to implement them. So who's the so the uh, the whole idea to rock the engine was that started out as George's idea and then it kind of you kind of took it over and. Well, no, it was all certainly George's idea. It was just we had uh, Tom Capera, the mechanical engineer, and I had to come up with a way to make it work, and so we we worked on that for quite a while. And I I talked him into the the electronic driver scheme that we used and. Was it cheaper to do it the way you did it compared to? Yeah, you know, probably not, but but it was kind of cool to do it. <laughs> so looking back on it, are you sorry you did it that way in the big picture? Uh, not now that it actually all worked and everything. I'm not. At the time, I was pretty sorry having gone down that road. But right, right, because you probably just could have had two coils just to kind of throw it either way. Yeah, know? then it would have been kind of like the uh, the was the path of whatever out of. Um, Indiana Jones. Right. Kind of flop, flop, flop. It wouldn't have been any control, really. Even if you had the engine mounted on some sort of, like, rubber, you know, grommets or something like that, you'd think it would still be kind of floppy? I, I, I'm thinking so, but it's it's hard to tell. You might have been able to put springs in there or something and gotten a similar effect, but I'm not sure. Maybe. Right, right. You know, you don't really know. It's hard to, it's hard to guess. What about the um, the two cars on the racetrack? How you know was that? Uh, I assume that was George's idea too, right? Yeah. Well, you know, we actually had a uh, the, the three of us, Tom Capera, George, and I, and and Bill was involved too. Um, probably the sound guy to some extent, and the artist. Uh, we all we all had a pretty pretty good group that just sat down and figured out what to put in the game. George usually had these you know these ideas pretty clear but you know we brainstormed so it's hard for me to say that it was everything was definitely all george and but i think that you know it was mostly george and and we all had ideas that we kind of threw in there and said hey would it be cool to have this or that you know and it's a car racing theme and and all that so capera may have come up with the track i'm not sure he certainly designed it that was a masterpiece of of uh mechanical design yeah it's pretty cheap too it's this big injection molded thing Never had to fix one of the racetracks before. Yeah, I think they pretty much work. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. The your motor every once in a while you gotta fix that. But that's actually pretty robust too. Yeah, when it's working it's pretty robust, I think. Yeah. The little uh the little 
rubber uh, spark plug leads on it tend to break off. But. Right, right, but that's not really anybody's fault, you know what I mean? That's yeah, that's just, just where. Yeah, it's just kind of how it is. Right. So was there anything in that game? I mean, I know there were supposed to be drop targets in the game, and that got that got uh, nixed out somehow, right? Well, you know, that's that's the old running gag, right? Just the designer would always put drop targets somewhere so that when... when uh, Management came by and said, "This is too expensive. We got to take something out. You'd have something to take out." That's that's what happened. Really? Yeah. Actually, my game here at home has a uh, has the drop targets in it. So. Yeah, I retrofitted uh, my game with the uh, my Corvette with the drop targets too. It, it it wasn't that tough to do, really. No, it's you know all the programming's still there. It's just a matter of wiring it up and sticking it up. I'm not convinced it makes a big difference in the game. It's kind of interesting, but. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not a it's not a huge deal. Yeah. You know, but it, it is kind of cool to have them. I mean, um, so that was the running gag, huh? Everybody would put drop targets in the game so there was something to take out that, you know, could be taken out without, you know, weepy eyes, huh? Yep, pretty much. Huh. Huh. Did they do that on every game? Management come in and go, oh, it's too expensive. Oh, yeah, that was typical. Really? It wasn't always drop targets, but it was always something of that nature. Right, right. Well, was there anything else in the game that got that got you know nixed out that you know you were sorry to see go? Corvette, I don't, I don't recall anything else that got thrown out. George would be the person to ask that question. What about? Um, he remembers on that. When you uh, when you were doing that, you know, you you got to put the prototype what, 1996 Corvette up in the in the translate or whatever. I mean, did you guys have any interesting experiences working with GM or anything in that respect? I think it was pretty smooth. Um, there was actually an earlier version of the of the back glass which had had some other cars in it that GM nixed couldn't be on there because it was you know you can't have that in a GM licensed thing. So so there is a there were there were some trans lights made the the. Uh, Prototype translates made with the with the alternate artwork. And are you saying that they were non-GM cars? Yeah, I think there was some other car in there, like a uh, Ford Cobra or something like that. Rings a bell. Right, right. Okay. So then, when you got done with Corvette, uh, you went to Johnny. Um, another another Gomez game. How did now? You know, any interesting experiences with that? You know, especially that glove thing. I mean, who came up with that? Man, <laughs> the glove thing. Yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, It'd be cool if the ball if if the glove would catch the ball. Great idea, brilliant. So uh, yeah, that, I think that was another George idea, of course. As I recall, uh, we were all really excited about the the theme, and you know, Keanu Reeves in a movie. What could be wrong with that after after all his success? Um, we loved the uh, we loved the the story because we'd all read the book or the short story, and uh, George was on a plane coming back from some show or something with Neil and Neil's all hot to, to, to do that license so George says yeah I'll take the license are you talking about Neil Castro? yeah that? I believe so I think that's how it goes okay um, and and then we we do the license and and the movie comes out and it bombs so we're pretty we're pretty bummed about that even though we, I think the game turned out pretty good yeah the movie so, was odd I would say it was very very strange strange game well, no, the movie was. Oh, the movie? Yeah, the yeah. movie was a little bit... Yeah, the movie was really odd. A little bit odd. Yeah, really odd. Um, the game, I, I, I used to own one. Uh, I don't I don't own it anymore. Um, I never really had a problem with the glove. Um, when I, I think when I got it, a couple optos were bad, and I replaced the optos, and pretty much the glove worked. I think if you keep the, uh, 
the uh, threaded rods lubricated, you're pretty good. Right, right. And the um, that matrix where you kind of got to drop the ball into that, you know, kind of like that tic-tac-toe board type right. thing, and then how it spits the balls out of that, that was all kind of kind of neat. You yeah, know? I think that was uh, I think that was Capera's idea to do the do the ball thing like that. Right. But the one thing that you always notice in that game is the lane change. And, like, you know, you hit the flipper buttons to change the lane change, and it's like, God, you can almost count the seconds before you see the light changes. Is that, you know, the uh, bog or whatever? As yeah, it that was the bog. I, I didn't have time to fix that before it went out. Is that something that was fixable, though? It probably was fixable. I just didn't, you know, there was, there was so little time to do that game, and I was doing it all myself, and and uh, there were other things that seemed more important at the time, but in retrospect, that was probably something that should have been higher priority. Right, right. So I wasn't the only one that noticed that, huh? No, you know, you're not the only one. Okay. I think Steve Ritchie probably complained about that as much as anybody. Okay. And was there anything else in that game that got left out or, or whatever? Uh, what else? Was, uh, not that I remember, but there probably was. I mean, was that game, you know, when it was all said and done, were you happy with that game when it was done? I was happy to be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> so that game what didn't exactly wasn't the thrill to work on, huh? Yeah, actually it was it wasn't bad. I you know, I've enjoyed all the games I worked on there. It was uh it was certainly the most I put more work in that game than than a lot of the others. Not uh, you know, j- just straight time because um you know, it just it just took a lot of work to get the game to to be finished in the time that we were doing it and it was a show game, I think and and uh so you mean you had to work, get it? You know, some of those games during during what we called uh, game hell, we'd be we'd be working like six or seven days a week. You'd, you'd get home at like two or three in the morning, wake up at seven, and go back to work. Right. So, you know, we'd put in 110, 120 hours a week. And were you were you okay with with that that much crunch? Well, yeah, there wasn't much choice. Well, I mean, compared to your other jobs, I mean, you know, you, you certainly were, God, man, you were robust enough, you could probably work anywhere, you know? Yeah, that's probably true, um, but but it, re- it really was a thrilling experience to work with all these creative people, and, you know, everyone was, everyone was, everyone was putting in time that was pretty serious, um, and doing their bit, but it was, you know, it was, uh, it was like the steamroller that you couldn't stop. Just the excitement of doing it and getting it done and having it finished, and it was a great time. Did you ever, you know, when you're programming an assembler, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you, everything had to fit into, uh, what, a 4-meg EEPROM. So you got... Yeah, unless you were a couple games had 8 megs, but right. all our, ours had 4. I mean, was it ever an issue where there just wasn't enough space? Oh, yeah, there was always trade-offs. You'd either uh, throw out some pictures or maybe some sounds or... No, I guess the sound was in a different chip. Let's see, you throw out some pictures possibly or throw out some chunk of code that, you know, you didn't really need, maybe one of the wipes or something or some of the wipes you weren't using that were some of the standard system. You could take some of that stuff out or move stuff around or rewrite some code some some other way or, yeah, certainly. Okay. And was, um, I mean, when you were doing that stuff, I mean, you know, was it ever a point where you, you just didn't have enough space where you said, man, I just... I really need a, you know the next size up EEPROM or whatever. I well, mean, I never, uh, I never got to the point where I had to, had to force that as an issue. I, you know, just worked around it and made my code fit. Right. 
Right. There were some other constraints that were that were that were more system design oriented, like uh and that was part of the problem with, with the uh with the bog was that there was only a certain amount of space that was available for the for the low level interrupt handling uh routines and stuff like that. So that was usually what we ran into as a real problem was making all that fit in that allotted space. Now, the the sixty the sixty eight oh nine though can really only access what sixty four k bytes of information. So to get it into a four megi prom, which is five hundred and twelve k bytes, you've got to page it, right? It's all bank switched, yeah. And it was that like a was that in just a simple thing to do, part of the Apple code, or something you really had to manage? Actually, the Apple code made it made it pretty uh, painless. Um, there were regions of of space, and you had to keep certain things in the same regions to make it uh, work right. But as far as calling it, calling out of one space into another space, it was all transparent pretty much um, by based on macros that were written for the assembler. So it was it really wasn't too bad. And Larry had that all laid out ahead of time, huh? Yeah, they they had that figured out for us. Right. Right. So it really, it, it sounds like it wasn't too bad to to do all that assembly language then in, in that large of a space. No, not too bad at all. Okay. Um, all right. So then uh, you went to uh, and another thing you you said you, you all three of these games were, were Gomez games and actually your your fourth game Revenge from Mars was a Gomez game too. Um, I mean, no, I was didn't that... do any game code on that. I was just a system guy on that. Okay. Um, but, I mean, was this a conscious effort on your part to stay with George, or was that just how it worked out? Um, both George and I started roughly at the same time, and they kind of paired us together as a new team. And we worked together pretty well, so we just stuck it that way, and that's how it worked out. Um, okay. That's the way it was. Uh, when, when George was doing... Um, Monster Bash, which was his last WPC game, I was uh, starting to work on the new system and stuff, so that's when, when uh, Lyman took over and did that with him. Okay. Now, NBA Fast Break, tell me about that game. Fast Break was a fun game. Um, we did some new stuff in that that people, some people liked, some people didn't like. The whole scoring thing, which I think was, was great, personally. Um, some people didn't like because it was, you know, not pinball. Yeah, it's like it didn't give you a pinball score; it gave you a basketball score. Exactly, but as a result, if you're uh, if you've ever played with another person, like you know, in a two-player game or four-player game, whatever it is, you can really, with the low score, you're like, man, all I got to do is get, you know, one more basket or two more baskets, and I'll be beating this guy. You know, you knew exactly where you had to had to go to win, and and I think that that you know, made a big difference and made it a lot of fun, and I've seen a lot of people enjoy that. Well, what about, I noticed in the last ROM revision for NBA Fast Break, there's an option where you can have both a traditional pinball score on and the basketball score. And that's, when I own my NBA Fast Break, that's always how I had mine oh, set up. The combo thing. Yeah, I always did, I always went with the combo because it seemed like it was the best of both worlds. You know, you had, you know, you had a, this relative pinball score, um, and you had the basketball score. Yeah, I don't recall who uh, who said to do that or if we just decided it was a good thing to do. But I never run mine that way, actually. But 
we put it in there just to try and, you know, satisfy the rest of the world. Right, just to balance out everything or whatever. Yeah. Okay, now, whose idea was it to, to put the link, the whole link thing in? The which thing? The link to where you can have two NBA... Oh, the link thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't recall who came up with that idea. But you implemented it, right? Yeah, I implemented it, and I, my name's on the patent, so... Right. It was me, I don't remember. Now, how come that never made it into any other games? Uh, you know, um, someone else, uh, Stern, I think, has some Link stuff now. Although it's not used for gameplay, Link, it's just used for their, uh... For their tournament system. Tournament system. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, why didn't that, you know, that could have been, you know, interesting in some other games, too. Gee, you think that might have been a good idea? Uh, you know, it, it... We barely got it to... Got it through marketing's head that that it would uh, you know be a good thing at the show and and we ran uh, pers- the people running the show me and George and Kapara and those guys um, we did a tournament where we gave away some NBA um, stuff like a watch and a basketball and sports bag or something like that I've forgotten exactly but we ran a tournament at the show um, trying to show off the whole length thing and and the tournament play. Which, and how did it go? Which was the first that, that game had, you know, had a tournament play system in it too. Right. And uh and but but the whole the whole marketing group never really saw it, figured it out or got behind it or anything. I don't know why that was. You know, they were maybe that's why Williams went down the tank. They just kinda of sat and answered their phones and didn't really weren't proactive very well. Right. Right. No, I thought it was pretty it was pretty cool. I mean, you don't see a lot of people that have two MEA fast breaks, that's, you know, the only downside of it. Yeah, the problem with that whole idea is that, you know, you're you're wasting two slots in a in a small tight bar. It's not gonna happen. Right. You'd see it maybe at a Dave and Buster or something where there's lots of room, but Right, right, right. So did I mean the whole cabling system in that that was available through probably through parts sales, did they did you ever get numbers on how many of those they sold? I think we gave them away with uh, with the games. Really? Because everyone I've seen, I've never seen the cable. You know, everyone... I, I've had a, actually a number of NBAs, and I've never seen the cabling in any of them. Hmm. You know, so I... you know. I know they were available for basically for free, so... Hmm. Okay. Just uh, hooked into the, the printer interface, so it was just a matter of putting a couple chips in the in the game and putting a th- wire cable on, and you're good to go. Right. Right. So then... And there was a whole topper set that they made for it that was special that I've only seen one or two of. What do you mean a a topper set? There was a special topper that after you had your two games, you know, bolted up next to each other, it would cross over and connect the two games. And it was like some kind of artistically designed cardboard header piece or something that goes across the top. Oh, they kind of like it's a bridge? special for linked play, yeah. Right, right. So those things are rare. Sell them on eBay. All right, we're going to take a break from talking with Tom Uban of uh, Williams Software Engineering, and we'll be right back after this message. Topcast is brought to you by Pinball Life. Give your pinball machine new life with parts from Pinball Life. We ship pinball parts worldwide. Pinball Life is located in the great city of Chicago, and their phone number is 773-202-8758. We have an open-door policy, and you're welcome to call us with your questions and concerns. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Their website is at pinballlife.com. Pinball Life. No hassle, just the parts you need fast. Okay, we're back with Tom Uban of uh, Williams Software Engineering, 
they give us some more stories about his uh, his work experience during the 1990s at Williams and Valley. Now, was there um, was there anything in NBA fast break that you know got left out, left on the floor, you know, in that game during that design? There may have been, but you know, it's been so long ago, I don't recall actually. George would be able to tell you that. You need to interview George. Try to get a hold of him. I will. Um, is I mean, were you pretty much when you got done with NBA? Were you happy with with how that product came out? Yeah, I thought that was an awesome game. It was. It's probably the favorite of uh, of the three WC games that I worked on. Okay. And do you have each one of these games in your in your basement or whatever? I do. They're in my arcade. Okay. Cool. And uh, okay, so then. What, around 98, you started working on Pinball 2000, right? That's right. Okay. We worked on it for 18 months, I think, before they pulled the plug. All right. Now, when George and and, uh, and Pat Lawler were working in Pat's garage on, for the hollow pin thing, were they can, you know, were you privy to any of that before anybody else, or did they just No, I didn't see any of that. You didn't. So they just showed up one day at Williams and said, hey, we got this neat idea. Everybody come on. Let's, we're going to show you. And, you know, that was the first time you saw it, too. Pretty much. That's right. Okay. And what did you think when you first saw it? What was your reaction? I thought it was hot shit. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, who came up with the whole idea to use a PC, you know, as the hardware element opposed to, you know, customized board set like WPC-95 was? Well, the whole idea was uh, the new system had to be low cost, and we knew that it was going to have a uh, CRT in it. So we needed, you know, more horsepower to drive it than, than like, just a basic microprocessor or whatever. The uh, So the only way we figured we'd be able to do that was to to have a, you know, PC motherboard and, and whatever the current cheapest motherboard was at the time that fit our bill um, and had enough power and then just write the software so that as over time whatever the current thing is at, at, at that price point which was you know the whole motherboard thing pretty much they cost a hundred bucks right and this month it'll be some number of gigahertz and next month it'll be you know slightly faster but it'll still be a hundred bucks so we knew that it would always cost the same, it would just get faster, and it would be pretty much compatible. We just had to write the software so that it would drop onto each one. And was that a big challenge, you know, for that? As Because, you know, PC hardware, God, it changes every two weeks. So it's Yeah, that's true. Um, fortunately, the only thing that was going to be difficult that we saw was, was that the graphics controller and it was going to be changing. And so our plan was, you know, to... Just go and build the build the interface so that, however that changed, it would be the same from the game programming standpoint. But we'd be able to uh, put new lo- low level drivers in and and utilize whatever the new hardware did. Now, why did you use such a low, uh, you know, VGA style monitor when you could have used literally anything? Uh, for cost, primarily. That was yeah. the reason, huh? It's uh, I think that's a mid res monitor, isn't it? No, it's VGA. Yeah, I think at the time it was considered mid-res, maybe, because we were doing 640 by 240, or 240 by 640. So we're pretty high horizontal, comparatively. Well, I, I don't, I don't really know the the video game uh, standards, but but at the time it was uh, 
this kind of mid mid level resolution anyway because we were doing a higher horizontal than than what they were normally doing. Yeah, I think the the normal VGA is like 640 by 480. Right, but they weren't using VGA in in video games at the time either. Right. Right, so. Right. So it was just purely cost. Yeah, it was all cost, you know. Here's 200 bucks in the monitor. We can't afford anything more than that. Right. Right. Okay, so now as far as programming, you did everything in what C plus or C plus plus or something? It was all uh, primarily C plus plus with a little bit of C. Okay. Now, were you? I mean, why not assembly language, or it just wasn't needed at that on that machine? Uh, there's no excuse to use assembly language if you don't need to. Right. Okay. Because the whole idea, you know, ideally we would write a we would write a system where the programmer or even the game designer could fill in some tables and. And test out ideas and, and just have it go. You want to you want to be able to write it in some sort of object-oriented fashion so that you can reuse code. You want to be able to make it as easy as possible to make the game fun rather than spending you know, gobs of time writing little detailed code that does stuff over and over. Right. Right. Okay. So now you were you were the whole you were basically the man behind. The architect and the and the and the low level software on Pinball 2000, right? Right. I uh, I did the operating system and the game code um, for that with help from a number of uh, other people that trickled into the into the project over time. Graham uh, West was the was the probably the biggest other contributor. He did the graphic system, which included um, well pretty much all effects. Including graphics and lamp and, and such. Um, Louis Coziars did the, who's well, up until recently was working out at Pat Lawler Design um, for Stern, did the uh, adjustment and resource management system. Um, Cameron Silver did uh, what he did some of the game, some of the game logic and a number of different things. Um, and Duncan Brown did the drivers that were generic for running the um, PCIO type stuff. And then Cameron and, and Duncan went off and did the second uh, game, uh, Star Wars Episode One. So you didn't do any of the, the software for Revenge for Mars at all? I didn't do any of the game-specific stuff. Um, I built the, a lot of the framework, which was the game handling code and, and such for... That, that the games are built on, so that, that's standardized between every game, kind of like what Apple did, um, but as well as the operating system itself and the low-level stuff that made it run on a PC and boot and do all the all the pub card and update and all that stuff. Um, that was all pretty much mine. Now, why why use why use a um, you know the Prism card system opposed to just running off a hard disk? Uh, we didn't think a hard disk would survive in a pinball environment. Just too much vibration. Too much vibration, failure. We didn't. We just didn't want that that risk. Not to mention the additional cost. Looking back on it, was that a smart choice? Yeah, I think it was because uh, if we did it today, you know, you could throw in a compact flash that was way bigger than you needed, and and wouldn't have had ROMs at all, but it would still be updatable easily and such. Now explain the whole prism system and how that works. There's, now there's, you've got, you basically do have ROMs on that with 
some base level, you know, let's talk, let's use Revenge from Mars as our, as our example. So you've got a Prism card with ROMs on it with some base level of Revenge from Mars software, right? Right, it's, uh, the, the main, the card is, the card is a simple PC, PCI architecture with a PCS2 style, uh, sound system and 72 megabytes of mass ROM, um, which at the time, and I, I think may even still be the case today, you couldn't buy EPROMs that were as large as the mass ROMs that we used on that board. 64 megabytes of that was for game image um, and, and code, and the other 8 megabytes was for the uh, sound system. And then there's also four megabytes of flash for updates of the game code and or imagery. And another one megabyte, I think, of flash that contained the system for the DCS sound. And, and you could update that as um, to update any sound stuff you needed. So when you run the update manager, the software actually ends up on the Prism card. In yeah, the, when, you, uh, when you boot without an update, it boots out of the masked ROMs, and when you update, it puts new code into the flash, and the and there's a standard set of boot code that comes out of the masked ROMs that checks if there's an update, and if there is an update, it, it uh, loads that instead. It does a bunch of, you know, verification to make sure it looks good and all that. Right, right, okay. And it, the sound system works similarly, although I don't know the exact details of that. That was written by Andy Eloff. And this whole system with, uh, I mean, that this Prism card, was this a Prism card custom-made for your, you know, for you guys, or is this something that was commercially available? No, we designed it in-house. Brad Hume did the uh, electronical design um, based on what we figured we needed. So this whole Pinball 2000 from a software and hardware standpoint, this must have been a real... A pretty serious challenge for you. Yeah, it was a big project, especially for the time scale that we did it in. I mean, we we got the system, we started working on it and got a system out the door in effectively 18 months, year and a half, which is pretty pretty out of control, really. I mean, you think about it, how long that is. Well, how long do you know how? Like, for example, you were there when they transitioned from you know regular WPC or WPC 89, whatever you want to call it, to WPC 95. Yeah, I just barely caught the end of that, so. I mean, was the development time on that pretty long? I don't really, I don't know the details on that. Okay. I wasn't involved with it. I was, you know, so. Right. I right. kind of saw the tail end of that thing happen, but I, I didn't, I, don't, I wasn't involved in the development, so I don't know. Right. So now, what was the, what was the biggest challenge when doing the pinball hardware architecture and, you know, in the, in the operating system? What was, what was the toughest thing to accomplish? I think it was uh, pretty much all uniformly hard. <laughs> getting it all, getting it, getting it all done in the time frame that we had. Right, uh, we had to make the hardware work, which, uh, given Brad's uh, design skills, wasn't terribly difficult, but it was still a big item. Um, brand new operating system and and game game environment, all meeting the challenges of of a team that started working on it before we were done. To get revenge out the door, um, yeah, it was you know it was just it was just one big blur. It was a lot of work, and 
and it turned out really well. I think. Yeah, it sure did. I, you know, I've got a revenge, and I, I think it's, I think it's awesome. I have to say, one of my biggest disappointments is that, is that, well, in addition, in addition, or besides, uh, Williams turning off the whole pinball thing, which, which you can justify to some extent based on how much they are losing, money-wise, but the fact that they that they didn't organize the sale of of the of the company or the sale of the IPC or 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 any of that, you know, it's just mind-boggling, right? Here's all this all this intellectual property that they could have done something with but didn't, and and what's become of it is is even is even crazier, right? Now now the patent rights for Pin 2000 are spread across a couple of different people and corporations and if someone did want to do Pin 2000 today I think it would be nearly impossible well it'd probably be pretty tough too to I don't know you know you'd have to port everything to current you know current PC technology I'm just just talking uh, technology wise if you wanted to build a game that had the reflective you know virtual display thing uh, independent of, of whether you utilize the existing software and tried to port it, uh, the the patents that control the use of that of that in a pinball game are divided across multiple entities, so no one company has the rights to do it. So right. So you mean if Stern, for example, wanted to go in that direction, they, they'd have a really tough time because all the that's right because Gene owns some of it and uh, <coughs> Australian Wayne owns some of it and. I think Williams may still have a piece of it. Yeah, it's just a big mess. Yeah, huge mess. So now, when um, when uh, Revenge came out, you guys uh, when it was first introduced, what in England, right? At a trade show in England. That's right. Did you go over and, and did you go over there when that was uh, when that was happening? Actually, that's one of the disappointments that I didn't choose to do that because I thought it was better time spent on my part to sit in my office and get the program up or the, the, the pub card update code and, and uh, software update stuff working. I recall working on a, I think it was like a Saturday night or something when those guys were all over there. And it was probably like, I don't know, eight or nine at night. I'm no. working on getting that going and they're all over there uncreating games and I guess it wasn't all that much fun, but it was certainly more fun to sit in my office. Now, the um, the one thing that keeps coming up is the pub card. Why don't we talk about that and what the theory was behind that, behind the pub card? Uh, I think it was a pretty pretty uh, innovative idea was that you have this ISOBUS card, which would have uh, had to have been done differently with, with newer motherboards that don't have ISOBUS. But, but the idea is that when you throw an ISOBUS card in, um, a PC, the BIOS, which we actually didn't change, um, we use the existing BIOS, uh, boots or executes code out of the, the ROM that sits on an ISA card, potentially, if that card looks like a graphics uh, card, or maybe even some other cards like network cards. And so what we did was just put a chunk of ROM, of, of memory, flash memory, on a board that plugged in an ISA slot and a little bit of code there that got executed by the BIOS and we just take over. So, and I should explain that ISA means industry standard architecture, which was basically the slot configuration for a PC back in the day. That's right. Yeah, right. Was, that's yeah. how you plugged in your graphics card or your right. or your some kind of I/O card, you know, game controller or whatever. Yeah, that's all changed now. They don't use right now. ISA. It's all PCI bus or right. or USB or or whatever. Like that. Yeah. 
Right. But so this pub card, you know, basically people didn't buy the pub card. They like, if you were like an operator, you could go down to your distributor and maybe borrow the pub card, which would have the latest version of Revenge on it, and plug it in your machine, and then it would update it. Is that what the theory was? Yeah, you know, most people didn't buy. Well, I guess there were some people that bought games, but for the most part, games weren't sold to individuals at the time. And so there were operators who ran big routes, and if they wanted to update their software in their game, they would they would have you know some number of these cards. There was they didn't cost anything. They were they were really simple, and you could take this card and and plug it into your PC and load it up with the latest software, and then take it over to each of your games and update your software in your games. Right. It's kind of like even though it wasn't a, a you know there wasn't USB back then, it was almost trying to be like a USB USB flash. You know, like one of those little flash memories that yeah, you buy at sticks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, would, it would work kind of like that. Right, right. Um, right. Okay. Except oh. it was a little less, you know, user friendly since you had to open the chassis on a PC in order to plug it into your. Right. Because this was. To, to yeah, load it up. But. Yeah, pre USB days, as it may yeah, be. Pre simplicity. Yeah. Now, when. Um, you, when you were doing uh, the software too, you were still developing all the operating system while the guys were doing uh, Star Wars Episode One too, right? Yeah, we continued to, to make updates and make it better. Okay. Now, what, did you ever get to play uh, Wizard Blocks? Sure, I played it a couple times. What, what did you feel about that game? I thought it was going to be spectacular. Okay. So, I mean, even... I think it was probably going to be uh, Pat's best game. For, you know that he'd done in, in some time. He was he was really enthusiastic about it. He uh, he was going to use some some skills that that he had in his back. He had a background in theater and such. So I think that his uh, background in theater with his lighting skills would have would have fallen directly in line with with the abilities of making stuff appear and, and disappear in the virtual area on the screen and and behind it. And, and it would have been just you know an awesome game. How far did he get with that code? Uh, or the whole game, for that matter. They had a prototype. I think Gene's got it. Right. Right. But, I mean, it's not really... It's nowhere near finished, right? No, it's not finished. Right. I don't I don't recall if there was any final artwork even designed for it. I, I just don't know the answer to that question. I've only ever seen the, the Whitewood. Right. Right. So, now, um, when, at Expo 1999, they had... The, the game for Expo was the Revenge from... Or, not Revenge, Star Wars Episode One. And you, didn't you develop some sort of system for the tournament scoring that linked the machines together? Right. Lyman Sheets um, wrote some Java code that would run on a PC and communicate with a server that I wrote that ran in ran on the uh, PIN 2000 box in, in the game. And they would interact, and, and together we put together a system where you could swipe cards and... and Run a tournament, and we demoed that at, at the uh, at the expo, and it went pretty well, given yeah. how much time we didn't have to develop it and how much we didn't actually get to test it out before we went there and tried it. <laughs> it actually worked pretty well. Yeah, it seemed to work really well, actually, from from what I remember. Um, you know, I mean, just from a casual, you know, looker on. You know, I, I, I was I thought it was pretty impressive. Now let's talk about uh, Black Monday. Were were you at at work on that Monday? No, I was on vacation. You were on vacation. 
So I was down in southern Indiana, I think, somewhere. So what? I mean, what? Uh, how did that whole thing play out with you? Uh, Pat, <coughs> Pat. Uh, I mean, Jim. Jim Patla gave me a call and uh, told me about it. And what? I mean, did you see this coming? No, I didn't see it coming at all. Because uh, you know, it was obvious that George kind of had some. Yeah, George kept it, mom. Yeah, but he, so he did know about it all ahead of time. Yeah, you know, it might have been partly because I was gone for a few days before before people were, you know, like George were were knowing too. I don't know when he first learned, but but I've been gone for like a week or something on, on my vacation, and and then I found out. So I was kind of out of the loop for for a little bit there. And what was your feeling when that when that whole thing, you know, I'm when pissed you pissed off? You, you were pissed off. Sure. Okay. Now, I mean, how during the whole development of Pinball 2000? How was management, I mean, how were, what was your perception of their reaction to it? I think everyone thought it was, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. We'd, we'd reinvented the wheel. And, and that was how I perceived that our customers were taking it too, right up until, um, there was some, some kind of deal going on with, with the European sales on Star Wars Episode One where, where because management thought it was doing well, as I said, they decided to raise the price or something there. I don't know all the details on that, but yeah, they raised the price five hundred bucks. Yeah, raised the price, and then and then uh, Europe canceled a bunch of orders or something like that. Or yeah, with the exchange rate, um, that five hundred dollars at the time, the U.S. dollar was much stronger. Uh, you know that equated to a lot more money for them. And they got a lot of, you know, because I guess they were just piling on orders for that game. That whole Star Wars thing was just, you know, the, the you know that was the first of the new movies. Yep. And of course, you know, Huge nobody, license. yeah, nobody knew about Jar Jar at that point. And um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with Jar Jar. <laughs> so you think? <laughs> so, um, you know, there there was a bunch of orders canceled because of that. It almost seemed like, to some people, would say that that was sabotage to some degree. You know, I, I don't know if it was sabotage or just poor business judgment or what. Right. I think you know I I think that management felt that they needed to get more out of it, and they probably felt they could get more out of it based on how well it was doing, and that they didn't expect it to backlash as much as it did. Right. Right. So were there any other bonehead management moves that kind of you know caused some problems for Pinball Two Thousand? Right. I don't. I don't know. Other than, other than pulling the plug now. So they were su- completely supportive of the whole thing all the way along, and then all of a sudden just one day they said, that's it, we're done. Yeah, that was pretty much my perception, but but I'm sure there was, you know, I wasn't, you know, I'm not an accountant or anything, so I'm sure that there was a lot of bleeding going on, and and, and they were trying to figure out how to how to make it, thing make money, not to mention that here's this other lucrative business that, that they're doing now running uh, building slot machines it's like what are we doing why are we losing all this money on this thing when we could just be building these things that, that turn into gold right right even though pinball was pinball 2000 was actually making the money that we actually showed a profitable or profitable year or quarter i can't remember um you know it seemed like it was doing well yeah i don't know maybe you know. the projections didn't look good i don't you know i, I can't speculate there i it's easy it's easy to to lay blame and such but but who knows without you know, pretty good sized engineering department so I'm sure that eight tons of money there were 
there were things going on that we just didn't know about, right? So, so how about, you know, after that, did you stay on for any length of time, or were you just immediately gone? Um, they kept a select number of people to wrap up and archive, and I was chosen to do that. So I wrapped up and archived for a month, and then uh, and then we were done. So we put all this stuff neatly into a room as if they were going to do something useful with it, and then it just evaporated. Right. Well, there's a the bonehead thing. Yeah, the evaporation part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, that whole thing, I, I mean, when I go and play The Revenge, you know, I, I think it's, you know, yeah, maybe it's, you know, it's not a perfect system, but it, it's the first game, you know, what do you want, you know? Look how short the time frame was to develop that. Here's a brand new game on a brand new system, developed in record time. Granted, they had, you know, a pretty good number of people programming it and such, but but still, I think it turned out pretty damn good for, for what it was, and uh, and it was... Yeah, it's just it's just a shame. Right, right. So, did you uh, when you got done? Did you were you tempted to go work with Stern or anybody? Um, I never really uh, went there and approached them to try and work with them, and they never called me. And and I don't know what the situation was there at the time, and and I've never really tracked it. I've kept you know in touch with people I know that work there now, um, but no, I never never went to try and work at Stern. And you don't work in CoinOp anymore, right? No, I went, uh, after after uh, Williams, I did a little bit of consulting for Ted at, at WMS and opted not to go over to Midway because I was just kind of pissed off at that time. So I didn't want to continue that. Um, although I did have a job offer over there. And so uh, I helped get a group of ex ball people employed by Cisco Systems, who um, I knew some people from Bolt, Brannock, and Newman that, that were working for them, and so we opened up the office in Chicago, and that's where Ted and Bill and a number of people are still working. Right, all kind of ended up there. Right. Although I've since left, left there, so. Right, you're, uh, you're doing consulting again? Yeah, I'm doing consulting again now. And how's that going? Is that good? Yeah, it is good. Okay. Okay, is there anything I've kind of left out of the whole picture here that, you know, you should throw in and add? No, I think we've covered it. Okay. All right, Tom. Well, I appreciate the time. Um, I appreciate... More than welcome. Yeah, I appreciate the stories. I mean, uh, we didn't leave anyone's out, did we? Anybody's story? No, I mean, any. No, I mean, did we leave any good stories out of the whole, you know, your whole kind of 1993 to 1999, you know? Well, it was all kinds of stories, but, I, you know, we don't have time for that. So. Oh, yeah, we do. Come on, man. Give me a story. I don't, you know, have any good stories. Okay. All right, man. I know you are, but I just don't remember. Yeah. It's been way too long. Yeah. I'm getting to be an old fart now. I can't remember shit. Yeah, there you go. All right, Tom. Well, hey, thanks. Oh, there is one, actually, one other thing um, that, I don't know, I'd like to mention it, uh, and that's the um, the Zoltan project. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was, um, I don't know, that was back, that must have been in early, what, 2001, maybe? That was all your fault. Yeah, that was my fault. I I had a... um, a Zoltan fortune teller, which came out in the late 60s, and used a, a, a Cousine uh, tape player, which was kind of like a customized, you know... Eight-track. Yeah. Sort of. It wasn't, I would say, more like a four-track-ish type thing or something. I don't know what it was. Endless loop. Yeah, endless loop tape. And the tapes were always eaten. And I actually hired you 
to come up with a, you know, kind of like an uh, MP3 solution, so to speak. Did you hire me? Yeah, I think I paid you, didn't I? Oh, yeah, you paid me for a box or two. Oh, come on, man. I gave you some money, didn't I? Yeah, you gave me some money for the boxes. I don't think you paid me to do the work, though. I didn't, huh? Did you? Did I, do I still owe you? Not that I recall. Do, do I owe no, you? But you bought the first couple boxes, so there you go. So I'm okay? We're, we're okay? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. And now you've got people knocking your door down to get to get one for either their Peppy the Clown or for their Zoltan, right? Yeah, I sold, uh, I don't know how many I sold, maybe a, maybe a dozen. Man, I get I still get emails from people wanting to buy them, and they're like, you know, throwing money at me, and I'm like, you're throwing money at the wrong guy. You know how much work those things are to put together? I have not a clue. <laughs> you know, I know you did all surface mount. You couldn't have done plated through holes to make your soldering life a little easier. Oh, I could have. The border would have been much harder to do, but and you can't get parts to do what they do today in that scale. But other right. than that, yeah, no, the surface mount wasn't the problem. It's just you know. Just a lot of time to put it together, and I do have a bunch of people queued up to buy some if I produce another batch. And I keep threatening to do that, but it hasn't happened yet. Why don't you have it, com- you know, commercially done? Yeah, I hate to think what it would cost to have it commercially done. Right, right. Yeah, because it wasn't really that expensive. I mean, just to kind of explain to people what it was is basically I had all the Zoltan fortunes in MP3 format, and then your player actually interfaced, it was a plug-and-play thing into the machine where you literally just unplugged the, the um, you know, the original, re- or, you know, tape player and plugged your box in, and your box was a solid-state equivalent with no moving parts, uh, nothing to wear out. Right, I actually designed the board that that was based on in an effort that I was working on to start a, a pinball effort, and uh, and that didn't go anywhere. But um, so I took that design and, and modified it to to do what you wanted, and uh, and that's pretty much where it came from. So I'd already already had a lot of the design work done, and I just had to hack off some logic that wasn't used for it and change design a little bit and and make the board. Right. Well, when it came out great. I mean, I've got one in both my Peppy the Clown and my Zoltan, and uh, a buddy of mine has one of those uh, what Auto Test Capital. Projector auto test, and he wants one for that too. Apparently, it'll pull just right oh, yeah, into that. Yeah, that must too. be the guy who called me the other day. Right. Yeah, that's Bill. Okay. All right. Well, Tom, I appreciate the I appreciate the talk. Thanks a lot. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Tom Uban again for uh, talking to us tonight here on Topcast and uh, giving us his uh, his perspective software development during the 1990s at Williams Valley Software. And until next time, I hope to see you again on Topcast.